0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. BofAML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Morning on a Monday, the thirty first of July. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura in New York with Francine Lockwood in London today. Tom Keane is off. The staff here instructed to alert me if they get any messages from Tom in Manhattan. We're Michael Shewell now. We were having a great conversation with him on Bloomberg Television just a few minutes ago. He's the chairman and CEO of Marketfield Asset Management. He joins me in our eleven three zero studios here in New York. And, and Michael, let me just take a step back from from the news we were just reporting a moment ago. How does this uh, how does this environment look for deals like the one we're seeing announced this morning?
2: You no, know, it's pretty good. I you know, I think people feel, you know, corporations feel fairly good about their own prospects and, and are willing to pay prices that sellers, you know, find attractive. So, I mean, I, I think that you know, typically with the mature point of a bull market, the mature point of the economic cycle, you would expect to see M&A accelerate at this, uh, at this point, And that's been happening this year.
1: Michael, what have we learned from, from earnings season thus far? Here we are seeing a lot of companies report their second quarter uh, earnings, a number of financial companies last week and the week beforehand, some tech companies last week uh, as well. What are we learning about the, the, the state of the market from these companies who have reported thus far?
2: I think it's been a, a pretty decent earnings season. I, I think that that we needed one, given that the S and P was up at an all time high. And you know, I think the fact that it's it's been a fairly quiet season in terms of the response of markets to it, I, I think that's I think that's fairly positive. You know, where there have been you know disappointments for markets taking action, but equally on on the other side, you had a you know a company like Boeing completely blowing out and and the market responding very positively to it. So, as I as I said on on, on TV earlier, I, I think this is very much the sweet spot of the economic cycle. It is the point at which you would expect earnings to meet and beat expectations, which, you know, which they're able to do. And in most sectors, we don't yet have the sign of, of sort of chronic oversupply. There's a couple of sectors that, that we'd start to be worried about going forwards. But, but in, you know, in most cases, businesses are still undergoing sensible expansion plans. And you, you, know, you may say they're paying, company A is paying too much for company B, but at least you can understand why they want to buy it in the first place.
3: Uh, Michael, you say there are a couple of industries that you would worry about. What are they?
2: I think commercial real estate uh, in the United States is the one that, that, that you know really has our attention. Where, where I think there are signs of, of chronic oversupply, and you know, even the news this morning that, that Angbang uh, is is possibly going to be forced to divest its its recent U.S. investments, a lot of which were in were in real estate. I, I think that that's a market where supply and demand may be starting to to, to really be problematic. You have a a lot of new supply hitting over the next 12 to 18 months, and a lot of the demand has been non-US demand for commercial real estate. And, you know, partly because of a a weaker U.S. dollar and partly in in China's case because of different government policies towards investments abroad, I think the demand side may be weakening just at the point that supply is accelerating. So, you know, if there was one part of the domestic U.S. economy that, that frankly we would expect to deteriorate over the next 12 months, it would be commercial real estate.
3: Michael, do you worry that as there's more of a shift towards passive investment, it means uh, you know almost automatically that hedge funds take a, a bigger role, which means that there are less players in the markets, which actually means that you could have not disruption, but you, th- that you could you know be mispricing things.
2: I, I think certainly, uh, passive investing towards the ends of bull markets involves chronic mispricing. Um, I think you know we're, we're heading towards that. You know, I, I think it's something that. I think is going to define the next bear market, which is which, which is likely to be much worse than economic uh, ec- economic conditions actually actually warrant. But but look, I I mean I think that every investment cycle is a product cycle. Um, that product tends to dominate dominate towards the end of this cycle. There's no point in 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 fighting the fact that people want passive investments and they're going to work very well at the index level. You know until this this cycle heads off a you know heads off a cliff, but. Um, I think it's something that that you do need to be aware of. I, I think that understanding what 's in indexes at this point in time is is crucial i i 'm always amazed at at how little people who use indexes and ETFs actually understand the way they change you know, across the course of a cycle. And I think that's the, the most useful thing you could do today, is at least understand what's in the index that, that, that you're investing in. And I think in many cases, you get quite a surprise. Michael, let me ask you lastly, we'll come back here in just a moment, we have a minute left, but uh, let me ask you about um,
1: uh, emerging markets right now, what you're seeing there and, and uh, where, where you're... Uh, particularly interested right now when it comes to emerging markets.
2: Yeah, we're, we're very positive on emerging markets. I think they have several forces going for them. First of all, a, a generally better global economy. I think in particular, a much better domestic Chinese economy, which is is really starting to have an impact on 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 Asian markets. And then at, at the index level, this sneaky reweighting towards technology. You know, the MSCI Emerging Market Index is now more tech-weighted than the S&P 500, and, and you know, it's really been technology returns which have been pushing emerging markets higher this time. You know, commodities haven't been very helpful to emerging markets. If that changes, that'll be another, you know, another push in that direction. And the final piece is is a weaker U.S. dollar involves stronger emerging market currencies, and you know currency returns in, in many cases have been almost as high as domestic stock returns. So uh, this is one of those years in which you really want to have a a decent exposure Mm. to EM, and I think that's going to continue to be true.
3: We were having a nice chat with Michael Scholl of Marketfield Asset Management, as he is CEO there on the markets, Uh, and uh, Michael, you were pretty confident that actually what we've seen so far is a trend where indices go higher, keep on going higher. What could reverse that? I'm seeing the dollar gaining a touch, but actually, given all the geopolitics out there, can that reverse quite quickly?
2: um you know i mean with with markets it's it's difficult to see an immediate catalyst which is going to make them go down i mean it, you you could have uh, you know a bigger version of what we saw on june 9th when you know the nasdaq for no apparent reason went down and you know i guess it could accelerate off that and you know could have a 5% pullback before you know it in a couple of days but you know i, I think that would be noise in a, in a in a in a fairly in a fairly calm environment and and you know, I think if you're if you're waiting for something more spectacular to the downside, I, I think you're going to have to be you're going to have to be patient, and you're going to have to wait for this cycle to deteriorate in some way or other. I mean, I, I think we, you know, right now 2017 looks like a good year. My guess is it's going to go into the history books as a as a very good year potentially the best year since 2009 for most of the world, and, and for the U.S., potentially the best year um, you know, since, two, since t- 2013. And if that's going to change, then it's going to be because of new news. The news sitting in front of us today, the existing news, it doesn't look that damaging to anything, and, and it's easier to see markets go higher than go lower at this point.
3: But you're not worried about some kind of big policy mistake? I, I know I feel like I ask you every 10 minutes, but you don't really know what the distortions are until you take away that safety blanket.
2: I, I think there's no doubt that central banks will lose control of this cycle. But I, I, I think they're either too tight too long or too loose too long. And it, it looks like the latter is going to be the case this cycle. So I, I do think that by the end of this year – Global inflation is going to be moving back to where central banks want it, and the worry for next year would be: does it continue to move higher, and does it undermine the ability of central banks to to keep in control of monetary policy? You know, in say 2018. But it's 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 going to take time to get there. I, I'm not the sort of person that believes that central banks have sort of you know become alchemists and have, have solved economic cycles. I, I think I think this will end in in a, in a period of chaos. But it takes time for chaos to emerge. You know, two thousand and eight didn't suddenly start on a on a sunny June morning when when the Bear Stearns funds blew up. It it started eighteen months eighteen months before that, and the technology cycle ended in March two thousand. But it ended with a couple of quarters of massive inventory buildups in 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 in, in key areas of the of, the, of the technology sector. And and right now, it's difficult to see that that process of excess getting to the point that you actually should be worried about it. You can understand that that markets aren't meant to levitate in the way that they they have been doing. Uh, you know I'm sympathetic to someone like Howard Marks who's trying to sound the medium term alarm, but if you're asking me am I worried about where the market's going to be on August 1st or September 1st or October 1st, you know, frankly I'm not right now. It, you know, it might change, but if it changes it'll be because something different happened.
1: Michael, you mentioned the, the prospects for chaos, the inevitable prospects for uh, chaos. What are you looking at for indicators of when that that comes? What what's, what are the data that you pay the closest attention to?
2: You know, as I say, in, in key sectors, supply and demand numbers matter. Inventory matters, as boring as they are. You know, do do matter. I think that that you know, measuring market cap is starting to become important. Understanding how large markets are. I mean, you know, the S and at twenty four hundred you know how many trillions of dollars is that what is a 10% move in the S&P how does that uh, you know actually match against what 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 central banks you know what central banks are doing so that's what that's what we you know sort of really struggle with the data obviously you look at it when it comes in it hasn't generally been very surprising and 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 you know if it started to move in a in a new direction then then you'd start paying more you know more attention to it but i think the the I have two questions in my mind. One is, is, is what is what happened in commodities three years ago when supply and demand got you know, badly out of balance and, and provoked a, a deep correction in that area, could that happen in other sectors in, in the global economy? And, and number two, at what point is the size of market cap of fixed income and equities itself problematic? At what point is our markets so large that they overwhelm the generosity of central banks? And, you know, that's going to be a very difficult question to answer. But at some point, it's going to matter.
1: Michael, great to speak with you. Thank you very much for the time doing both radio and television with us this morning. Really appreciate it. That's Michael Schell. He is a chairman and CEO, portfolio manager as well at Marketfield Asset Management. We're starting through the president's schedule just a moment to go. Busy day in Washington, uh, as I said. Here to help us uh, understand what's going on today and uh, here as we push ahead for the rest of the year is Wendy Schiller. She's the chair of the political science department at Brown University. Joins us. Professor Schiller, great to speak with you uh, once again. Uh, this is being heralded as a new day, uh, at least within the confines uh, of the White House. John Kelly taking over for Reince Priebus, who's been the chief of staff since the beginning of this administration. How radical a change does this promise to be, do you think?
4: Well, I mean, it could really be uh, a a very, very strong decision by the president if he allows John Kelly to get the White House in order. Let's not forget, you know, Dwight uh, D. Eisenhower, who was a general, really created this position. Truman had a sort of pseudo-chief of staff, but Eisenhower really thought you need a chief of staff. The government's big, the White House is big, and it has to be a chain of command. And this is a military guy, a general, who's used to that kind of organization. Will Trump respect that kind of organizational skill? I don't know. I don't think we know. Uh, if he does, I think things get much better for him in the White House. If he doesn't, I think things remain really chaotic.
1: Question about history here, Professor Schiller. Have we had an administration like this before, where there's been so many... Factions within uh, the White House uh, itself. A lot being made this morning of the fact that uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, uh, the president's son-in-law and daughter, respectively, senior advisors, both uh, like John Kelly, think he's a good choice for this job. Uh, have we seen a, 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 as fractious an administration as this one?
4: I think, you, I think you have, particularly in the first year, I think you've seen pretty chaotic administrations. And let's not forget Bill Clinton's administration, the first nine months of that. I mean, I would argue even until you get to NAFTA in December of 93 was a disaster. I mean, it was cabinet appointments flying left and right, not making it through. And, and the House was mad at him, and then the Senate was mad at him. He lost on stimulus. I mean, there was a disaster that first year. And I think that was because he had voices, lots of voices surrounding him, and hadn't settled on a couple of people he trusted. You need an agenda. The president, though, to want to listen to people to tell you how to accomplish it. We just don't know if Trump actually has an agenda. And that makes it hard for everybody who works for him in the White House, whether they're factionally fighting or not. What do you want to try to get done? And if you're not on the same team on that score, I just don't know how everything else doesn't fall apart.
3: Professor Schiller, what exactly does a chief of staff do? So you either take, you know, a bet that this is a command and control managerial task, which means that John Kelly, who's a retired general, would do quite well. But if it's a very political job, does he really have any experience in this kind of things? Well, I think you're pointing out
4: just a really important facet of the way that each individual president chooses to sort of decide what people who work for him will do, right? So sometimes the domestic counselor or the advisor to the president is the political person, and the chief of staff is literally the organizational gatekeeper. And that person manages the president's time, the flow of information to the president, and the president's agenda. But if you're somebody who doesn't have anybody else doing the politics, then the chief of staff takes on that additional role. So I think it depends on what the president's good at. At and not good at, and how much that president can see that the chief of staff can balance out his weaknesses and strengths. I don't think President Trump, at least at the moment, has actually self-reflected on that yet. So, uh, right now, it looks like just to get the White House in order, staff up completely. You know, the White House, even the president's staff, is sort of half full right now. You've got tons of positions throughout the administration and cabinet departments that are going empty. And, you know, there's one way to sort of slow the federal government down, but some jobs have to be filled. So So I would think that would be first on the agenda for the chief of staff.
3: Very quickly, does John Kelly have the support of Congress and does he need it?
4: think he, I don't think they know yet. I think Congress always respects people who have a long, uh, successful military career. But I don't think he needs that quite yet. I mean, remember, Ryan Spirits is best friends with Paul Ryan, and he doesn't have a job anymore. So I'm just not sure how much that will matter to the Trump administration. But you do want to have open lines of communication. So he he does want to be available to congressional leaders when they want to talk to him, and he wants to be open in hearing them. And I think if he does that, he'll cultivate uh, a good relationship with the leadership.
1: Professor Schiller, let me ask you about something you mentioned uh, a few moments ago. You're talking about uh, a lot of the positions that have still gone unfilled uh, in this administration. Uh, we heard from Anthony Scaramucci, the new communications director, that his means of combating leaks would be to fire everybody. Uh, what does the, the pool look like of prospective uh, members of this administration? Uh, how, how, how much of a deficit are they operating with at this point? And uh, how much do you think that John Kelly could write that?
4: Well, I, I mean, David, you're pointing out something that's so uh, important to a functioning White House. You know, the government, the federal government is very big. You have cabinet departments, you have you a tremendous amount of, of oversight of how policy is being implemented. And if you want to change that policy, you have the people in the chairs, at the desks, doing their job. And they don't have that yet. So if you have more people who lose their jobs in the White House, then you've got to replace them. And they've got to go through security clearances. And a lot of questions are asked. So you've got to replace them with more establishment people people who maybe have served in white houses prior to the Trump administration. And that's something Trump doesn't have any knowledge about in terms of connections. You know, established Republicans are not going to work for Donald Trump, at least not at the moment. They haven't been offering themselves. they have turning things down. People don't really want to go there. And John Kelly's job is to make it a more attractive proposition to bring in people with some prior government experience, particularly to places like the State Department, where you need diplomacy. You need this to be functioning. And that's, I think, the big problem. I think no Nobody wants to touch that job or any job right now who's in the Republican Party. They're just thinking ahead.
1: The, uh, the geographic gulf between the White House and the Capitol, I would guess, is about a mile and a half uh, wide. Uh, when it comes to how each of those places understands one another, where are we? How much of an understanding of the way Congress works does this administration have? Uh, and is, is the Congress getting better at understanding the motivations of the White House?
4: Well, I think that Donald Trump understandably expected that the Republican Party, even though they had, you know, been factionalized and fought his nomination, really almost to the end, would embrace him, would accept him and embrace him, and that he would have a lot of mojo among the base to push them in terms of a grassroots movement. If they didn't do what he wanted, he'd go out, he'd have rallies, and and then the the people who like Trump would pressure the Congress to do what Trump wanted them to do. It has not turned out to be that way. The Republican Party has not really turned a corner to embrace him, and because Trump's approval ratings are so low, he just doesn't have enough juice politically among the base in enough areas around the country to pressure enough Republicans. A couple of them here and there, but he doesn't have that wide swath of, you know, bully pulpit popularity, and that's something that has traditionally been a very important and strong weapon for the president, uh, particularly early in his term with his own party, and Trump seems to be completely missing that, and the longer it goes that he has a bad approval rating, and he doesn't seem to be generating any support, the more Republicans who are up for re-election in November 2018 will say, we don't trust him, we want to distance ourselves, we've got to go our own way, because he could, A, throw us under the bus at any time, and B, he becomes so unstable that he becomes a real liability.
3: Would the president be able to push through a tax overhaul this year if he were to focus on that?
4: I don't, think he, I don't think we need the president to push the tax bill. I think the Republican leadership is, desperately wants to do a tax reform bill. Uh, they want to cut corporate taxes. They want to cut uh, you know, income taxes. You know, there's two things going on here. They think there's obviously too much taxation. That's a Republican Party platform. But two, just as Ronald Reagan did, they want to squeeze the revenue stream. Because if you squeeze the revenue stream and you cut the revenue stream, you can cut spending, particularly entitlements. You know, Paul Ryan has not forgotten about his desire to cut Medicaid and cut Medicare and really transform the entitlement state uh, into something very different and much smaller. And, you know, the first place you start is to squeeze the revenue line. So I think that's the big part about tax cuts that's really ideologically important to the leadership in the House and Senate. So they're going to write a bill that they want, right. and they're going to hope that he signs it. And I wouldn't have any expectation that
3: he wouldn't. Great, right, but I don't understand why the president doesn't focus on that. If he wants a win, be it small or big, he can focus on tax and get it through.
4: Because he seems to be just, just a speculation, you know, obsessed with anything that has Obama's name on it. He just seems to want to prove that he can erase Obama's legacy altogether, and that means erasing something called Obamacare and replacing it with something called Trump Care. It seems to be a personal obsession of his, and the only people who can talk him out of that, I think, are the people who are closest to him who can say, "Listen, you got a long timeline here. Let's just move on and get a success, and then come back to." Obamacare, when you have more political juice. You know, you keep going at this 36, 37% approval rating, and you don't get yourself out of that. Eventually, voters just decide we're dismissing you. We're not going to be able uh, to restore our confidence in you. And that's where the president is. If we're talking about this in December and January, and he's still at 36%, he may get reelected in 2020. It's possible. But he'll have no juice or clout with the Congress going into next year. And so that means obsessing on things that they've moved on from is just going to be spinning his wheels.
1: On Friday, I had a conversation with Tim Phillips, uh, who's the president of Americans for Prosperity, a conservative group that's backed by the the Koch brothers, and they're going to be investing a lot of money and resources uh, in tax reform. And I asked him how he reacted to the uh, joint statement we got from Republican leadership in Congress and the White House on, on tax reform. My sense of it was – uh, it, it was still pretty thin. If, if you compare it to what we got from the White House a few months back, that was a page long. This was maybe a little more than a page. Of course, there was the definitive news that the border adjustment tax uh, has been dropped. And I asked him uh, if that was a good thing, that, that you don't have a whole lot of details, if that makes negotiation uh, easier. And he sort of indicated uh, that it was. Are you surprised by how little policy detail we have at this point? And do you think that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing?
4: Well, I think you have to have people who really understand the tax code to uh, have a very complex conversation, and I don't think Trump is staffed up enough, either at Treasury or even in the White House, to have that kind of conversation, and I'm not sure the president really understands all the ramifications of all the changes that he may or may not support in the tax code. And the other thing, is, it's still a tough political issue for the president because he never released his tax returns. So it just will dog dog him everywhere he goes, you know, there'll be a question, oh, you want to tax reform, you want to change the tax code. Hey, how about we see your tax you know, returns? So I think that's a problem for the president. If he could just release them and get that out of the way, I think he'd have a clean slate on taxes and publicly could promote or object to things that Congress wants to do. But I think that's the other problem for the Republican Congress. They don't want to get their message clouded by constant calls for asking the president to release his tax returns, which will inevitably happen when you're talking about tax reform.
1: Professor Sheila, let me ask you about the debt limit. Uh, this comes around time and time again. I think for people who are listening who are uh, investors, economists uh, involved in the market, this is hugely important. And uh, I wonder who you're going to be listening to for guidance on how this administration and how this Congress is going to deal with it this time around. There's talk again of having a clean debt ceiling increase. There's talk of tethering it to uh, spending cuts. Who, who's going to be taking the leadership role and who are you listening to?
4: Well, I pay attention to Mark Meadows, who's a Congress Republican Congressman from North Carolina, who's the head of the Freedom Caucus. You know, there are about 36 official members, give or take. Uh, They've got some really interesting uh, party discipline, sub-party discipline going on in the Freedom Caucus. And I'm listening to him. I'm watching him. I'm thinking about what is he saying about the debt limit? Does he want it clean? Are they going to support it? He's already indicated he doesn't want to see a government shutdown over it. But these are the most fiscal hawkish members of the Republican Party, and I'm looking to see what they want to see happen, because Paul Ryan can't get it through without them. So that's who I'm watching to figure out what's going to come out of the House. And I think right now McConnell's trying to regroup in the Republican Party and the Senate and try to find a way to move forward and be solid. You know, you just can't bring another proposition to the Senate floor if you're a majority party and lose again. You know, That's what started to happen to Boehner, and he needed the Democrats to get things done like the debt ceiling and opening up the government again. And McConnell just can't afford to do that this early in this uh, unified party government, particularly going into next year.
1: Pushing ahead here to that October 1st deadline, we'll continue to watch what we hear from the Treasury Department uh, and the Congress, from Mr. Meadows uh, and others. Wendy Schiller, thank you very much for your time this morning, both on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television as well. That's Wendy Schiller of Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. She's a chair of the Political Science Department at Brown University.
0: Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.
1: Russ Kestrish joins us here, as I mentioned, our Bloomberg 1130 Studios. He's head of the Global Allocation Portfolio at BlackRock. Great to have you with us here. Uh, thanks for taking the time to come in.
5: Well, Dave, thanks for having me. Let me start by asking you about
1: volatility. We haven't talked about it that much uh, this morning, and you look at volatility still hovering around uh, these lows. Talk about the particular challenges you face navigating uh, this low-vol world.
5: Well, I think the biggest challenge is everyone's waiting for it to end. Uh, we've seen the VIX go from low to low to low. It's not just in the equity markets. We see the same pattern in bond markets as well. And it's left everybody justifiably nervous about how much longer it can go on, uh, which has meant there's been a lot of focus on hedging. There's been a lot of focus on downside. But in an environment in which economic volatility is low and monetary accommodation is still very much present, not just in the U.S., but also throughout the world – Markets are just marching quietly on.
3: What are you most worried about, Russ?
5: I would say there are a couple things. You know, one thing that does have me a bit nervous, one of the side effects of low volatility is you see a lot of investors really having to lever up, getting crowded trades to kind of produce returns. And we hear about some of the leverage in the hedge fund space, particularly in market neutral, equity long, short. It reminds me a little bit of what the world looked like 10 years ago. We also had a low volatility environment and a lot of hedge funds were levering up in ways that produced a very fragile market. And again, in that type of environment, it doesn't take a big shock to produce some very bad results, at least for a short period of time.
3: So, Russ, are you saying that hedge funds have too much space in these financial markets, and does that really lead to distortions?
5: No, it's not that hedge funds have too much space. It's that there are particular types of hedge funds that in a low-volatility environment are doing what what they need to do, which is to lever up – to try to generate a target return, and that creates a risk. It creates an additional risk uh, if many of those players are focused on particularly crowded parts of the market. And again, what we've seen, for example, in U.S. equities, is that leadership has been somewhat narrow. It's been very much uh, a market dominated by some large cap tech names, uh, and that's the type of thing you always want to pay- take account of. Let me ask you a couple
1: questions about about currency here as a proxy for political risk. You, you look at the week. Dollar, you look at all of the, the political undulations coming out of, of Washington, D.C. How different is this environment, the, the currency market right now, uh, given what we've seen in terms of a political risk here in the U.S. And, and in Europe as well?
5: Well, I think the currency market is is discounting a couple of things. I mean, certainly politics is having an impact, although I think it's less about political risk mm-hmm. and more about uh, a reversal of the Trump trade, which dominated in the back half of sixteen. And as we remember, you know, at that time, there was – optimism, their expectations for significant fiscal stimulus, for infrastructure, for tax cuts. And clearly, as of now, none of that has actually occurred. So what you've seen is that many of those trades, the run-up in in value, the run-up in financials, uh, the uh, run-up in interest rates, and of course, the dollar have all reversed. Now, the dollar has been the most violent reversal. And I think in some ways, that reflects the fact that not only have we seen some disappointment Uh, From the administration, we've also seen a moderation of the U.S. economy and surprisingly a particularly strong economy in Europe, which means that rate differential, the fact that the Fed was going to lead other central banks, that's not quite as strong of a narrative as it was, which is why the dollars pulled back so dramatically, particularly against the euro.
1: Russ, do you have a sense uh, from this administration of what its dollar policy uh, is? We had, of course, the the Rubin strong dollar policy for so long – Uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, where this administration wanted the dollar to be from many uh, officials within the administration, including the president uh, himself. What's your sense of what this administration wants when it comes to dollar strength?
5: Well, I think like everybody else, uh, you know, we don't have any strong insight into the the administration's policy on this. But I think what you can derive both from comments from the president himself, uh, also from discussion about uh, potential successors to Janet Yellen or even reappointing Uh, Ms. Yellen, to to the role of chair, is that the administration is somewhat comfortable uh, with a dollar that's either a bit softer in the trading range. And that's one of the reasons I think the dollar has pulled back, that this is not an administration that, at least so far, has signaled they're looking for a strong dollar policy.
3: But does a soft dollar mean a soft economy?
5: Actually, it it doesn't. Uh, In in some ways, it it actually means the opposite. So if you take a look at U.S. corporate earnings in the second quarter, they're actually quite strong. We're seeing earnings growth of of 9 or 10 percent. We're seeing revenue growth around 5 percent. Uh, This is much better than expected, and I think a lot of that can be attributed to the fact that the softer dollar has provided a tailwind uh, for many U.S. multinationals. In addition, if you think globally, uh, a stronger dollar is a de facto monetary tightening, Uh, not just in the U.S., but globally. It's particularly hard on emerging markets. I think one of the reasons global markets have done as well as they have here to date (sighs) is that while the Fed has nudged up interest rates, uh, the weaker dollars actually kept monetary conditions right. uh, more accommodative. But, Russ,
3: very quickly, if you have a weaker dollar, it means that the Fed doesn't see an economy strong enough to withhold normalization. That's not a good thing.
5: Well, the Fed certainly is being cautious about normalization. I, and I wouldn't argue with the fact this is not an economy running away. But it's an economy, for better or worse, where it's been for the last seven or eight years, which is generating very low inflation – and steady but uninspiring two percent growth. So I'd say it's it's no better mm. or no worse than what we've had for most of the last five years.
1: Russ Kastrich is with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. He's the manager of the Global Allocation Fund uh, at BlackRock. Here with me and Francine Lacqua, who is in uh, for Tom today. And Russ, I wanted to ask you about energy. We're going to have a conversation in a few minutes uh, about the oil market in particular. But when you look at uh, when you look at equities, when you look at uh, other other assets at this point, how much is energy driving markets at this point?
5: Not as much as it used to. Obviously, energy is driving energy stocks. But if we think about the impact of oil prices relative to where they were 18 months ago in early 16, uh, if you remember back, that was a time when lower oil was really scaring the entire market, particularly the U.S. high yield market. And today, we see resiliency relative to the price of oil. Now, I think there's a limit to that. If we were to see oil slip well below 40 into the mid-30s, I do think you'd see some stress both in bond markets and equity markets. But in the mid-40s, what we've seen is that many energy producers in the U.S. can be profitable close to those levels.
3: Russ, do you believe OPEC are still in control of the price of oil?
5: Well, Francine, clearly OPEC is not in control the way they were, let's say, 30 years ago. Uh, we've got a major player in U.S. shale producers. The U.S. is now producing. Over 9 million barrels of oil per day. And the key thing is that for many of these producers, the break-even, as I mentioned a moment ago, is lower. And they're very nimble. They can bring production on and off again much quicker than was the case two decades ago. And this means that it has resulted in some loss of control, some loss of pricing control uh, for the OPEC cartel.
3: Right. What can they actually do to keep the price under control? As you say, there's so much competition from U.S. shale. They're meeting, I think, in Abu Dhabi next week on the 7th to try and make sure that there's compliance. That will do almost nothing, will it?
5: I think OPEC would have to pull back on production much more than they've been able to so far. And again, the last agreement, uh, there were exceptions uh, for Libya, for Nigeria. This is where a lot of the marginal productions occurred over the last six to nine months. So whether or not OPEC is going to be able to have a, a draconian enough cut. Uh, I think, as you suggest, that's just not clear.
1: Let me ask you about China a, a little bit here. We can pivot toward Asia for, for the last few minutes that, that we have with you. Uh, we, we watched as uh, the Chinese government convened this One Belt, One Road uh, forum. I talked about the prospects for a lot more investment, not just in China, but in the region uh, as a whole. How does that stand to change the region?
5: Well I think there are a couple things. One, obviously we are seeing a, a multipolar world, which which is the you know the, the obvious observation. Uh, in how that's gonna play out I don't think anyone knows. The, the other, of course, is the significance of Chinese growth, something we're all focusing on much more than was the case uh, 10 years ago. And I think that's one reason the global economy is in decent shape right now. Uh, China has been able to avoid, at least thus far, the hard landing that people were very concerned about in early 16. Growth is stable. We think it is likely to slow, but slow at a measured pace, and that means that China continues, at least for now, uh, to be a source of stability uh, for the global economy. Fran and I had the pleasure
1: of talking with your colleague, uh, Isabel Mateo Silago, a few few moments ago on Bloomberg Television. We talked a little bit about uh, industrial overcapacity uh, in China. I recall going with the U.S. Treasury Secretary, now former U.S. Treasury Secretary to Beijing, and this was something that he was hammering on a lot. China's need to reckon with this and do more uh, about it. We saw steel production reach, I believe, a record level here on a month-to-month basis last month. Uh, or earlier this month, uh, is China finally reckon, uh, reckoning with the fact that it's uh, it's producing too much steel, too much of other metals?
5: I, I think it is. Although, you know, as you as you know, this can be a very long process. But we are seeing some changes. Anecdotally, we're hearing of the closure of many many small inefficient mines and, and factories. We're also seeing a change at the macro level. If we look at the difference between producer prices uh, prices out of the factory gate in China today, which are now positive, versus a few years ago when they were consistently negative, uh, it does suggest that China is slowly starting to come to grips with their overcapacity problem.
3: Russ, what worries you about China the most? Is it so you have, I guess, the the holy, the unholy trinity of <laughs> you know reserves going down. They need to stabilize yuan at the same time. They have to make sure that outflows don't get worse.
5: I, I think the, the the capital account is definitely a source of concern. Uh, so far, they've been able to manage that. I think my, my bigger concern, Francine, and again, I don't know when it becomes an issue, but certainly the buildup of debt over the last five to 10 years in China is worrying. Uh, we've seen similar buildups in the past in other countries. It hasn't ended well. Now, that doesn't mean that China is facing a Western-style banking crisis. It is a different system. But it does mean if bad debts accumulate, uh, that can be a drag on China at a time when, Chi- when the rest of the world is very dependent upon Chinese growth.
3: Could it be as ugly as a financial crisis?
5: Well, I think it really depends on how bad you think the uh, the bad debt situation is. And the truth is, nobody knows. Uh, I'm a little bit encouraged by the fact that most of that debt is held domestically by China uh, in that China does have significant resources to address it. Whether or not they're going to be ultimately successful, I think, is one of the big risks we're all facing over, let's say, the next five years.
1: Russ, great to speak with you. Thank you very much for joining us here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Russ Kastrich, manager of the Global Allocation Fund at BlackRock here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Sure. now to be joined by Dennis Gartman, the editor, of course, of the Gartman Letter. Dennis, great to talk with you as always. Uh, Few people can do uh, this as well as you weave in the political risk with the market volatility that we've seen. Let me ask you, first of all, about uh, how markets have reacted to uh, the second intercontinental ballistic missile test we saw uh, last week. Of course, we're watching to see what the fallout from that is going to be on the diplomatic and policy front. How's it playing out in markets? What what does it portend for you?
6: Well, first of all, the response has been rather tepid, hasn't yeah. it? Gold has gotten a bid, but not a dramatic one. In in past times, one might have expected gold to be up fifteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars, and then it's up eight or ten dollars instead. The dollar itself is a little bit weaker, but the the operative words here are a little bit. So the responses have been strangely quiet. It is as if there is no real problem whatsoever, or if there is a problem, it is certainly manageable. So I think some people might well be surprised by the tepid nature with which many of the markets have responded.
3: Right, but then it's, I'm also looking at iron ore, right, and that's rallied quite significantly. Yeah. In fact, we're looking at almost like you know a bull run, and this is after we had some pretty strong China manufacturing data.
6: Well, I think that the, first of all, you'd, you'd had a bear market in, in iron and steel for a long period of time. Now, all of a sudden, it's turned, they both have turned much for the better. Base metals across the board have turned for the better. And I think that is exemplary of better economic environs here in the United States, but more importantly, better economic environs and, and, and a hope for better economic environment in the future in China. I think you have to be impressed by the fact that, that iron and steel prices are doing as well as they are. If there are uh, economic data points or anecdotal economic data points that I'm going to pay attention to, shipping is one, iron ore and steel prices are another, and both of them are starting to
3: turn for the better. Right. Can, can it go higher if you look at what China's trying to do? So they're, you know, trying to, I guess, fight over capacity um, and rein in some more unruly events by cutting production.
6: Well, I think that your, your comment about how, how swift has been the increase in iron ore prices and iron prices themselves and steel prices Perhaps after a very short span of time, they're a bit overbought. might uh, develop a bit of weakness, but I, I would suspect any sort of weakness that one gets, one should be a buyer. So what do I think the trend is? I think the trend in iron ore prices and steel prices and even shipping values are for the better.
1: We were just talking uh, with Michael Whitner of Socchen about oil. I want to get your take on, on oil as well as we, we look ahead to this uh, OPEC-non-OPEC meeting uh, in Abu Dhabi next, uh, next week. Uh, what's your sense of what's driving oil prices at this point now?
6: Well, first of all, the, the thing that I'll pay more attention to when it comes to oil is the term structure. What is, what is, the, is the contango narrowing? Is the backwardation widening? And the fact that we have moved, and, and let's begin by saying that until about three weeks ago, I had been manifestly bearish of crude oil, clearly, no, no, no equivocation. But then about three weeks ago, I started to watch as the front months, as, as the backwardation began to narrow, and discussions uh, incumbent in the markets that perhaps we might even move to backwardation, which is a very strange, a very material change over the course of the past several years. That shifting nature of moving from a contango to a backwardation tells us, one, either supply is diminished, which is not true, or demand is increasing, which must be true. So I I, I, I look at the the crude oil market, and having been manifestly, overtly bearish for a long period of time, Finally, I have to say to myself, maybe higher prices lie ahead. Now, after the last two weeks when prices have gone up rather swiftly, would I be a buyer here? No. But just like the discussion of, of iron ore prices, any weakness, perhaps a dollar, dollar and a half, two dollars from here, then I shall be.
1: Dennis Gartman, how worried are you about uh, the the week the weekend dollar? Uh, it's been weak now uh, for a while. How worried about that are you?
6: Not not particularly. Uh, if if we walked in several times and we watched the the euro trading above 120 and doing it in a very short period of time and doing it on a flash upward, I might be concerned. But the fact that it is quietly laboriously, the, the dollar is quietly laboriously moving lower, the euro is quietly rather, or in an orderly fashion, fashion moving higher, it, it doesn't bother me that much. It does mean that we will probably do better as far as export trade is concerned. And if you're a corn grower, if you're somebody in the, in the wheat export business, a, a weaker dollar is something that you would applaud. But let's not be too concerned. It has, it has weakened, no question. The fact that we've gone from 105 euros to 115 euros uh, might be some, uh, of some concern, but it's done it over the course of three or four months. So it's been orderly, it's been slow, it's been laborious, and I, and I therefore don't lose a great good deal of sleep over it.
3: All right, Dennis, what is actually impacting the price of oil more, the dollar or OPEC?
6: I I think it is a combination of both, and I hate to take that uh, middle-of-the-road attitude, but I think it is a combination of both. Uh, OPEC is clearly worried about its ability to get crude oil, to get WTI above 50, to get Brent above $52 and keep it there. They need to keep it there. They're going to try to keep it there, but they need to restrain Uh, Well, let me back up. The big problem that OPEC has is in in just a few of its members, Nigeria, uh, Libya, and perhaps even Angola. Nigeria and Libya have been left out of the quota system, and both Nigeria and Libya have been extraordinary in increasing production, to the dismay of uh, the Emirates, to the obvious dismay of the Saudi Arabians. And they need to bring them back into the fold. They need to, in this next meeting, they have to find some way, to put Nigeria and, and Libya back into the quota system. Whether Nigeria and Libya will even allow themselves <coughs> excuse me to be put back into the quota is another question for another time. But obviously the Saudis would prefer seeing that done. Can they do it? I don't know.
1: Looking forward to that another time with Dennis Gartman. Uh, hope to see you in New York sometime soon. That's Dennis Gartman. He's the editor of The Gartman Letter. Joining us on our phone lines... Pleasure to have here in our Bloomberg 11:30 studios in New York, Senator Jeff Flake, the uh, junior senator from Arizona, Republican senator from Arizona, author of the new book "Conscience of a Conservative," a rejection of destructive politics and a return uh, to principle. Great to have you. Here with us amid all of the political news out of Washington over these last few weeks. It's hey, great to see hey, you. thanks for having me on. It's nice to be out of Washington. There for, you go. Just a little bit, anyway. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, let, let me start with uh, with what transpired here over these uh, these last few days. Of course, the, the debates that led up to the uh, vote on a piece of health care legislation early in the morning uh, a few nights uh, ago. Describe that process for us. I think there must have been a lot of people who were listening to the show who who wondered what happened between the procedural vote and uh, how this happened on such an accelerated uh, way walk us through uh, what, what what went on, on on Capitol Hill over the last few days.
7: Well, I, I'm not sure uh, <laughs> it's fruitful to go through the whole thing. Yeah. It, was a, it was a kind of an ugly process. It always is uh, when you get a big piece of legislation like this that we're trying to to move through quickly. There is a, a bit of an urgency to it, in that uh, you know the insurance markets out there are unstable and uh, the exchange. Around the country, the Obamacare exchange is is faltering. In Arizona, we have 15 counties. In 14 of the 15 counties, there's only one insurer, and you know there's there's a risk of losing that insurer. So uh, there was there was a you know urgency to to go through it. We just didn't uh, didn't keep it alive. I, I wish we had. Uh, I think that uh, for those in Arizona, for example, 200,000 people will wake up this morning without health insurance. Mm-hmm. They've paid the fine. Uh, but uh, they can't afford to get insurance. And so uh, we, we desperately need that reform. But I think if we learned anything from the past uh, couple of months, and certainly last week, is that there are limits to what one party can do alone.
1: Help us understand the degree to which uh, the thing is still alive and the role that the White House uh, is playing here. I spoke with the Uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget last week, Mick Mulvaney, and uh, he said it was his hope that the Senate would still vote on something related to health care over the weekend. He clarified those comments further, saying uh, he thinks the Senate shouldn't vote on anything else until they take another vote on health care. Are you content to to leave this behind for now and and focus on other parts of the legislative agenda, or is this something you're still going to be, you and your colleagues are still going to be trying to work on?
7: Well, we've got to continue to work on it, but I I don't think that any uh, new vote uh, before the weekend is going to be fruitful. I mean, what would that vote be on, Uh, a motion to proceed Hmm. to something, a motion to proceed to what? Um, So we don't have enough of a consensus uh, on the Republican side to move ahead. We are uh, going to need to sit down with our colleagues from the other side of the aisle. I think that's going to happen. We all knew that we would get here at some point for parts of the reform. There there are only so many things you can do under rules of reconciliation where it only requires 51 votes. So uh, we, we just got there sooner than we thought we would.
1: And on the relationship with the White House, uh, I was on air on television when uh, President Trump convened his lunch with Senate Republicans uh, at the White House, and and if you just look over these past few weeks, there were uh, a few occasions, that among them uh, when he tried to to wield some influence, some political influence, to try to sway some uh, on-the-fence votes to to vote for this particular piece of of legislation. How effective was that? Uh, How healthy is it to have that kind of relationship between one branch and the other?
7: Well, I don't know that that, in itself, uh, moved the needle uh, much. Um, I know there, there's concern among uh, some of my colleagues that you know the House uh, got through the process. The president had a big signing ceremony, and then a few weeks later, he referred to the House product as uh, as mean. And I know that doesn't inspire a lot of uh, confidence among my colleagues that. That uh, you know that the same won't be said of a bill that we would pass, and so that 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 makes it difficult. Let me tell you, it, it does mm-hmm. make it difficult that relationship.
3: Senator, how would you describe the relationship between the Republican Party and the President right now?
7: Oh, it, you know, on, on some things. Uh, let me just to take the positive. Uh, he named a great Supreme Court justice. Uh, we worked with the President on regulatory reform. We passed. I think fourteen so-called uh, CRAs or the Congressional Review Act, where we pared back uh, regulations that were uh, straining the economy. Um, the President, uh, we think uh, most most Republicans in the in the Congress think uh, he has good instincts on tax reform, uh, lower the rates, broaden the base. Um, that's uh, Republican orthodoxy. So there are some things that we will uh, work with the President on, uh, but many of us are very concerned. Uh, with uh, one the kind of the, the chaotic atmosphere uh, that's going on uh, at the White House whether it's has to do with uh, domestic policy or foreign policy it's uh, profoundly unconservative uh, to to uh, you know have an unsteady unpredictable uh, you know policy and, and so that, that's concerning and then uh, things like trade. Uh, I, I'm very concerned, and many of my colleagues are as well, that we're being left behind uh, by other countries who are moving ahead. and And then also um, the uh, you know kind of playing to the base, uh, right. making it very difficult for us to grow the party and uh, speak to a lot of our larger audience.
3: Is there enough trust between the president and the Republicans? And if there isn't, how does the president regain that trust?
7: Well, I, I think you know we'll have to work on some other issues. Healthcare was a tough one to start with; it really was. Healthcare is a big, complex in, issue in and of itself, but it's it's personalized for people, and uh, you know obviously hindsight's 2020, but uh, it would have been better to start with something else. Uh, so I, I think maybe uh, with tax reform, if we can uh, build some trust there, I think there are more shared uh, values there, perhaps uh, that we can work on. Um, but, uh, but a lot of it has to do also with, with tone and demeanor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we in the Senate have rules that, uh, you know, almost always require us to work across the aisle. It's not just on pieces of legislation, but just to move, uh, you know, the Senate business. Uh, it's done by unanimous consent or by supermajorities and, and when the president is referring to people on the other side of the aisle as losers or clowns and, um, You know, it it just that that doesn't help matters. It really doesn't.
1: Well, let's come back here in a couple minutes talk about some of those uh, rules. Of course, the president proposing in these recent days a a new kind of nuclear option here going with the simple majority eager to talk to you about that. And uh, and Andrew book, Conscious of a Conservative Rejection of Destructive Politics and a Return uh, to Principle Eager to see how conservatism fits into the Republican uh, Party uh, today. Senator Jeff Flake with us here on Bloomberg Surveillance in our studios in New York. He's a Republican senator from Arizona, junior uh, senator from Arizona joining us here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Let me let me ask you if I could, Senator Flake, just about uh, what it's like to be a conservative in the Republican Party uh, today. When I talk to members of the House, in particular, uh, it's not uncommon if the Republican members for them to be affiliated with the Freedom Caucus or uh, some other caucus, uh, ideological caucus within the Republican Party on Capitol uh, Hill. How tough does it make things to have such a, a, a maybe not fractured, but uh, uh, di- different, different parts of the Republican Party? How do you get them to to cohere?
7: Well, that's a lot of what the book is about. Uh, that's why I wrote uh, this book, "Conscience of a Conservative," kind of borrowing from the from Barry Goldwater's uh, you know seminal tome of uh, fifty six years ago, uh, where he recognized that the the party had had kind of been compromised by the New Deal at that point. Um, I think the party today is being compromised by things like uh, uh, protectionism and. Uh, uh, um, and also this this kind of demeanor that we have, where you have to be madder than everybody else, and uh, and it just it's not a good combination if you want to grow the party. So I am concerned with with where the party is and uh, where the White House has been, and and that's really what the book is about. And it's not uh, not an opportune time to write a book like this when I'm in my re-election uh, bid. Uh, but I, I felt it was important enough to uh, to spell it out as to where I think conservatives need to go. We need to embrace uh, traditional republicanism and conservatism, which is limited government, economic freedom, free trade, um, and, and not look sh- for short-term gain.
1: I look at the, the White House as a bit of a microcosm for this. Of course, there's all the palace intrigue, but you hear about those who are the so-called globalists butting heads with uh, the conservatives, the Steve Bannon types, what 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 have you. Uh, and you know, we just read uh, Josh Green's book about Steve Bannon, the role he played in the president's election campaign and now uh, in his administration. And he, to my mind, at least, to my reading, at least, sort of wants to blow things up in, in a different way than you describe uh, in your book. How, how does that complicate matters? To, to have uh, people within the, the party call, calling for a whole scale reinvention, you're calling for it in one way, he's calling for it uh, in another. Uh, can there be a coming together? Can there be a, a, a unified Republican Party, do you think?
7: Well, I think our first obligation as uh, conservatives uh, is to be honest with people. And it's far easier for a politician to point to a shuttered factory and say, oh, that's just a free trade. You know, Mexico took your jobs or China did when it's far more complex than that. And uh, we have to realize we're 5% of the world's population, 20% of the world's economic output. If we don't find new markets for our goods – we simply don't grow economically. I recall, you know, the term globalist. I went, during my last campaign. There was a blog post in Arizona at one point that said that. Jeff Flake was seen in the company of globalists in Paris, France. <laughs> <laughs> Two strikes against <laughs> yeah, you there. I, I thought at that point, I thought, well, you know, what? Uh, you know, who else do you find in yeah, Paris? Yeah. Or, uh, what, what's the alternative to be called a provincialist uh-huh. or a localist? <laughs> or, you know, I'll take globalist if that's the, the case. But I think we have to recognize that, um, obviously, we need to address the concerns of the factory worker who may be out of a job because of automation um, or because uh, we've simply uh, found a more efficient allocation of capital—that's what uh, capitalism does—and and we need to be sensitive with that and, and work with job training programs and, and whatever else to deal with it. But we shouldn't tell them that uh, that some of those jobs are coming back um, in certain energy sectors or coal mines or whatnot when when uh, you know that's that's just not the way we're headed. And so I I think we owe it to ourselves and and certainly to the country and to the party uh, to be honest about these things.
3: But, Senator, how does the party regroup and refocus? Does it just only really have to be the president refocusing and maybe regrouping? And that will mean that the party is on a better track, on a better footing.
7: Well, this has been – this isn't just the president's uh, problem. Uh, We've been adrift for a while. In the book, I talk a lot about – uh, coming to Congress uh, along with Mike Pence, we both ran uh, free market think tanks in the 90s. We got to Congress at the same time, all f- full of vim and vigor, and wanting to have these great debates over, you know, whether it should be a flat tax or a consumption tax, <laughs> and and quickly uh, found that uh, the party was kind of slipping away, and our uh, these great debates were kind of in the past, and we became the party of of earmarks and and uh, corruption and. Uh, so much so that in 2006, we lost the White House. Or I'm sorry, we lost both houses of Congress, and then in eight, lost the White House. And frankly, we deserved it, given what we were doing at that time, the overspending and, and everything else. Um, I'm, I'm just afraid that uh, unless we get back to traditional principles of limited government, economic freedom, free trade, and a, a, a politics that isn't uh, mean and coarse, uh, then we're going to be uh, in the minority again.
3: Are there any circumstances where you see the party splitting?
7: Um, you know, I, I don't think that that's the case. I, I don't think that that's needed. Uh, I do think that we have to have a recommitment to conservative principles. That's what the book is about. Uh, but I do still think that the Republican Party is the vehicle uh, for conservative policy. And, and uh, I think it can remain so, but it's going to require... Uh, a recommitment and to to stand up when whether it's the president or somebody else who's trying to take us down uh, a path that uh, that simply doesn't hold up or won't work in the long run you know this is populism is you know it's called populism because it might be popular in the moment but i'm afraid we're we're on a bit of a sugar high now and when we come down it'll be particularly unpleasant can look
1: at this president through prison prism that he's a sort of populist proxy for frustration. Uh, and I think there's yeah. a lot of frustration with uh, how slow things seem to happen or not happen uh, in Washington, D.C. You see that play out with this president when it comes to our relationship with China uh, in particular. Uh, he met the president in Florida and just a few months later he'd uh, expressed some frustration uh, that uh, things hadn't moved along faster with with China's willingness to show some might toward North Korea, you're seeing his frustration play out now, and I imagine a lot of Americans' frustration play out now when it comes to this health care vote and the rules uh, of the Senate. We've seen the president tweet over these last few days about changing uh, the the way that the, the the Senate votes on things to make it to a, move it to a simple majority, 51 uh, votes as opposed to, to 60. Do, do you understand the, the the impulse to to make that change, and uh, sort of what kind of effect would that have on policymaking, on legislating in Washington, if we were to see a change like that? Uh, in the most, the world's greatest deliberative body.
7: Well, let's uh, keep in mind that uh, we failed to get 51 votes, mm-hmm. let alone 60, uh, for so the realism airplane.
1: you described there just a few moments ago.
7: Right. Uh, so I, I don't think that that would change anything immediately, but I think for the long term it would be an extremely detrimental uh, if if we were to move to a system where the Senate was just like the House, uh, where we responded more to populist sentiment. Uh, then we would be lurching, I think, back and forth, as we have been with regard to health care. Uh, Democrats were able to do it. They had 60 votes for a short time uh, back in uh, 2011. And, and then we have Obamacare. Mm-hmm. and And now we're trying to repeal it just with a bare Republican majority. Um, And, you know, we'd be lurching back a couple of years, uh, you know, toward another extreme. We're far better off uh, when the Senate works the way it has. When we reach across the aisle, uh, the requirement of 60 votes almost always uh, requires a bipartisan approach. And let's face it, uh, if you want legislation to endure the test of time, it's best when you reach across the aisle. And most importantly... As I talk about in the book, um, the, the most important things we've got to solve in the future, dealing with our debt and our deficit. We're, we've got $20 trillion in debt. We're going to soon be back at trillion-dollar deficits. At some point, the financial markets are going to respond and just say, you're not such a good bet anymore. In order to fix that, we have to sit down mm-hmm. with our colleagues across the aisle because no one party, Republican or Democrat, if that party controls both chambers in the White House— Uh, no one party will tackle it alone because they share or they don't share any of the political blame you've got to have the parties as we've done in the past couple of decades every good budget agreement we've had over the past 40 years has been done when we had divided government where both parties sat down and said all right let's share the political risk and so as i explain in the book uh, that's the approach that we've got to have moving ahead
1: Senator Fleck, thank you very much. Don't be a stranger. Love to have you back on uh, the show in the future. That's Senator Jeff Flake, author of Conscious of a Conservative Rejection of Destructive Politics and a Return to Principle. That book uh, out tomorrow. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Guerra with Francine Lacqua. Tom Keane back in our studios tomorrow.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. bofaml.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.